Well, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm really excited about our topic today, which is fasting, but I'm even more excited about our guest, who's an expert on fasting, Dave Asprey, and he has a new book out called Fasting This Way. I actually have the book right here, and I own it on Audible, and I own it on Kindle. I've given it out to several people in my family that I felt like needed to get, get this information. Um, their health is pretty bad, and it just had great information in it. It's a very simple and easy to read book and has a great story in it. So Dave, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, but thanks for coming on and talking just about fasting. I'm really happy to be here, Donna. Um, you have played a major role in the evolution of understanding what food does to our biology. I'm going oh, way back you. before almost anything. So it, it's an honor to be on your show. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I have been around for quite a while, it seems. But what's really cool is there's so many back in the day, there was so much misunderstanding. But you know what? Fasting was kind of in for a while. The old timers, um, Bernard Jensen, Paul Bragg, they were very much into fasting and juicing and all that. And then for a long time, no one even talked about it anymore. So it seems to be back with a vengeance. And uh, I think even though a lot of people know what fasting is, there's a lot of confusion around it. So I have a lot of questions. I've been writing down all day, things to ask you. But before we get started, um, I was really enjoying your story. Like all throughout the book, you weave this story of you in a cave. So could you tell everybody about the cave story? Yeah. In 2008, I realized, okay, I've managed to lose a substantial amount of the weight that I have to lose. I've, I've tried lots of different diets, including... Um, including yours. And I've, I've had progress. Uh, and I still know though that I'm at some level afraid of being hungry. And part of that is that I've just had it beaten into me. If I don't eat six times a day, my body will go into starvation mode, which by the way equals death. And then I'll get fatter. And I'm afraid of getting fatter and I'm certainly afraid of dying like most people. So that was kind of weighing on me. And I also knew because of research, well, you could go two months without eating and you're probably not going to die. So I'm not really starving. And I also knew that if I didn't eat, I would get hypoglybitchy and then I would act like a jerk. And I was afraid of acting like a jerk because I've done enough of that in my life. So like, okay, I'll hire a shaman and she'll drop me off in a cave and there'll be no food and no people for anywhere in 10 miles in any direction. And then I don't have to worry about eating if I'm lonely, don't have to worry about cravings because they might happen, but I can't do anything about it. Uh, so I tell the story of fasting in a cave on a, on a vision quest because that's a spiritual fast. That's something that you can do, something we have done as a, as a species for thousands of years in every spiritual tradition. But to try to do a spiritual fast in the middle of a work day where you've got you know kids running around at home who should be in school, and you're trying to focus on your job and you've got all kinds of pressure, that's not when you do a spiritual fast. That's not when you decide, oh, I'm gonna only have water this morning and suffer. There's stuff you could do during a fast that turns off hunger. So you just have more energy and more focus. And that's what fasting is about. We can actually go a certain period of time without starving. I'd just like to get the facts on that. Well, I interviewed someone on Bulletproof Radio um, who runs a medical clinic with water only fasting. And the longest fast he's led someone on is 70 days. Oh, of water only. Mm -hmm. Now he's doing two lab tests a day and making sure they're safe. And this is not something you should do at home for sure. But 
studies show that the vast majority of people have at least 60 days of no food whatsoever before they would starve to death. And for most people, it's probably closer to 90 days. So if you don't have lunch today, you are in zero danger of starvation. But how many times do people look at someone and say, wow, I'm starving. It's 11 o'clock. I think I can make it to lunch. That's just not good programming. You're not starving. In fact, what you have is a craving. You're not even hungry. And hunger is a, a, a gentle feeling like, you know what? I guess I could eat. It'd be a good thing to eat in the next little while. But if I don't, it's all right. That's hunger. And star the, the starving feeling is usually driven by what you had in your last meal. So when you're just ravenous and all you can think about is food, there's something going on and it's biological. It's not hunger. Well, you know, I found that a lot of times um, just drinking some water takes away that desire to maybe you're just thirsty and, and just having a glass of water gets you over that. But there are some people that shouldn't be fasting now. There's, do you want to talk about that? If you have an eating disorder um, or you're pregnant or if you're menstruating, those are not good times to fast. Those are times to nourish yourself. <laughs> and the notion of fasting isn't about eating less calories. It's about waiting a while to eat the same number of calories you were going to eat that day, but ideally eating better calories because calories aren't that big of a deal. If you fast for say 18 hours, which isn't as hard as you might think, but then your calories are all corn syrup, <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a very nasty next day. But if you eat normal, healthy, grass-fed foods with good fats, uh, maybe some fermented foods, what you're going to end up with is you're going to feel good and not be hungry for many hours. And the, the schedule that works best when I say 18 hours, people say, that's impossible. Have dinner at five. And then before bedtime, you have five hours. And then you sleep for eight hours. You've already fasted 13 hours when you wake up. And then you say, you know, it's now say 6 a.m. I'm not going to eat at 6 a.m. I'll wait till 8 a.m. You just did a 15-hour fast. Mm -hmm. you wait till 10 a.m. You just did your this 18-hour fast. And if you wait till lunch, like, well, wait a minute. Did I really just go this long? So it's much easier to go 16 hours without food than most people would think. And especially for women, the data is in and from a study in Australia from Dr. Murad, who has just been on my show. She had women intermittent fast Monday, Wednesday, and Friday only. They had breakfast, mm -hmm. lunch, and dinner the other days of the week. And even that had massive improvements in their metabolisms, in their insulin resistance, their ketone levels went up over the week. So we know just having some time, most days, but not all days, where your body takes all of its digestive energy and turns it towards regenerating you instead of breaking down your next meal, that's worth doing. So there's this term that many people have not heard of yet called autophagy. Can you just describe that? Kind autophagy, of fits into the fasting picture. Autophagy is something your body does when there's no food in your stomach for a while and very specifically no protein and no carbs. And it's when your body says, okay, I have the ability to break down proteins and it'll clean up junk outside the cells, inside the cells. And it'll actually get rid of old cells that don't make energy very well or don't function very well and replace them with newer, younger cells. So it's fundamental to staying young and it's fundamental to getting young if you're aging. And if you're just tired all the time, getting rid of the, the bulbs that are dim, <laughs> that's what autophagy really is. So all the bulbs can burn at full brightness and you do it because it makes you feel good. 
and it makes you look good, but it's really about having the energy in your brain and your body and a youthfulness that you lose. If all of your repair processes are constantly just engaged to eat food, 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 instead spend half the day on repair, 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 and then eat more, eat bigger meals later in the day and then use the energy then. And it's that time without food that drives autophagy. Well, personally, myself, I didn't know anything about autophagy years ago, but I don't really like breakfast. And even though the nutritionists and all the stuff you read back in the day said, oh, you must have a big breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. I just didn't want it. And so I waited until I actually had an appetite, which would be, you know, more like 11 o'clock or something. And then I'd maybe have two, maybe small protein meals. And then a and I always have plenty of vegetables because I grew up in the South and I'm used to lots of vegetables. But, you know, I was always doing uh, a form of fasting without even knowing about it because nobody had come up with terms like time-restricted feeding and um, intermittent fasting. But those are confusing to people. So can you talk about uh, each of them and, and why are they? how are they different? And how would you know which one to do? Well, intermittent fasting means you go a set period of time without eating and choosing the right period of time to go without eating makes it more of a circadian thing. There's a chapter in Fast This Way on using food and light in combination to set the timing signal for your body. Mm-hmm. If you go back I know, to- I Can I just interject? Like you've yeah. got the 70, 20, 10 theory. So talk about that too, if you would, if it's um, into what you just said. If you look at, at, and this is a theory, these are not hard science numbers because there aren't studies like this. If you go back 2 billion years ago to when we were some kind of a cell floating around that we identify as ourselves, and there are these bacteria floating in the ocean, and we tell ourselves, oh, we harnessed these bacteria to be our mobile power plants, the bacteria tell themselves, we found this mobile Petri dish, we moved in, and we're still in charge. So there's kind of competing views of who's running who. The evidence is in, though, that the mitochondria, the ancient bacteria, and all the things bacteria do, they're motivating a huge amount of human behavior. Um, it's just invisible to us until we think about it. So these bacteria aren't very smart, but they need to know when to do certain things. And at night, it gets cold and dark, and there's no food because they eat algae. So at night, they would sink down into the, the colder depths and just sort of sit there. And then as the sun comes up and it gets red and then yellow and then you know bright blue skies, the water warms up, there's more algae, and they float to the surface, they eat the algae. Right, so the most available time for food is between about noon and 2 p.m. And then the sun starts to set, it gets redder and redder, and then it gets colder and colder. So what sets our circadian rhythm, what tells our all the cells in our body to start acting like it's daytime at the same time and to start acting like it's nighttime all at the same time, it's probably 70% light, I'm guessing. But we don't know, but we know light's the strongest signal. And with light, it's the color of the light, the angle of the light and the brightness of the light. And the second big signal is food. And that's why if you have a midnight snack, it completely screws up your body because the part of your body that looks for, when did I get food? Oh, it must be daytime. So if you tell your stomach, oh, it's daytime and you try to tell your brain, oh, it's nighttime, it doesn't compute very well. And then you end up with parts of your body not doing what they should do and it disturbs your sleep. So you say, oh, I slept eight hours like always except you woke up feeling like garbage and your sleep quality wasn't very good. And I say that I've tracked my sleep for 15 years now and I use an aura ring, which is the best available tech you can have. I used to sleep with a little headband on because I was such a bad sleeper, not because I'm some you know superhero. And 
what you end up learning is that the other 10% is temperature. So if you wanted to really change to become a morning person, which is something that I did as I was writing the book, uh, mostly so I could drop my kids off at school in the morning. And I like to stay up late. I've always been a night owl, which is a genetic thing. There's some 15% of us are wired to be the night guard. So I stay up late, I write my books. I like that. It just doesn't work with life. I'm the same. That's me too. You're the same, right? Mm. So what you do is you have lunch instead of dinner when you're intermittent fasting. And then you make sure you dim the lights at night. You might use the True Dark Glasses, which is one of the companies I started. And you get really interesting results. And then you, you cool your room at night. And all of a sudden your stomach... And you know you don't eat anywhere near bedtime. Your stomach, your food availability, your eyes, something called the SCN part of the brain, they all line up and then they all know it's nighttime. So when you get tired, you go to bed at 10.30 instead of 2.30 and you do it naturally, right? But if you were to have dinner at seven o'clock, it doesn't work. And if you were to turn bright lights on in your bathroom right before you go to bed to brush your teeth, it doesn't work. So you've got to get both the food and the light aligned and then cool your room off. Mm. And then your ancient bacteria that are running the show, like, oh, look, we recognize this. There's no light. There's no food and it's cool. Let's all go to sleep. Well, what is, how, how does this tie into intermittent fasting or well, time-restricted feeding? So let's define well, the two. And then so there's also- So time-restricted feeding means that you only eat um, for a certain amount of, of time. There's a window of eating. So if you're doing an 18-6 fast, it means you go 18 hours without eating and then you eat for six hours a day. And so you've just restricted the amount of time that you're eating, but you eat a normal amount of food. Um, and then the other one uh, involves eating more in alignment with the time of day. So you can have time-restricted eating that is also circadian compliant. And that generally means you have most of your food closer to the middle of the day. Well, um, what there are different windows. Like you can um, eat within an eight-hour window and then fast the rest of the time. And then there's a you know, 10 hours, even 12, do you think 12 hours is enough? I mean, some people just might not be able to go any longer there than 12, studies, eat for 12, fast for 12. There are studies showing that that's the minimum effective thing that shows any difference. So if 12 hours works for you, you start with 12 hours, but then going to 14 is probably a good idea, but you don't have to do it every day. And, and that's the real important thing to understand here. If you didn't sleep well last night, if you're tired, if you had a lot of emotional stress, if you're getting a cold, it might not be the day to fast. Mm -hmm. And fasting some of the time, look at fasting like exercise. You wouldn't go to the gym and work out really, really hard every single day because if you do, you'll probably get injured, you'll get overtrained and it actually stops working. And you know that if you're really tired, you would do a light workout. And if you're really ready to go, okay, I'll do a heavy workout. So the rigid fasting schedules, a lot of people say, we have to do 16-8 or it's not a fast. You only have to have water. No, it's okay to do a 12-hour fast today because it's all your body wanted. And then tomorrow say, I'm going to do a 14-hour fast. Mm -hmm. And most people end up settling into a rhythm. They find something that works. Uh, one of my good friends, Michael, uh, he says, Dave, 17 works for me. 16 isn't enough. 18 is too much. Mm -hmm. And you, you learn by experimenting and just seeing what feels good. And most importantly of all, the same amount every day is not necessary. There's no reason to do it. There is a reason to say, I'm not gonna eat until I'm hungry. And if you find at 10 a.m. you're just ravenous and it's time to eat, all right, fine. You did a 14 hour, not a 16 hour fast day. It's okay, you still got benefits. So the perfectionism tied to fasting tends to make people overfast. And Donna, one of the reasons I wrote Fast This Way is that I've used intermittent fasting in the Bulletproof Diet for 10 years now. 
and people have lost way more than a million pounds on the diet. And I have a lot of information from people. And what happens is we'll go down this interesting thing that, that all people do. Say if something is good, more of it's better, right? And that's probably true with money <laughs> or chocolate, but it doesn't mean you're gonna eat all the chocolate right now. So the problem with fasting is that if you felt great doing a 14 hour fast, you're gonna say, okay, I'm gonna do 16 and you feel good. And you say, okay, I'm gonna do 18 and then I'm gonna do it every single day. And then I'll do that and once or twice a week, I'll just have dinner once a week. So I'll do a 23 hour fast. That may be great, but people tend to overfast and it affects women before it affects men. And if you really lengthen that time when you don't eat and you do it every single day, the body gets a signal from the environment that says, you know what? There is not enough food here and it creates physiological stress. And in women, after about four to six weeks of overfasting, the first sign is sleep quality goes away. You wake up, you feel like you didn't sleep. And then your cycle gets irregular. Um, if you're still having a cycle and then your hair gets thinner as your cortisol levels go up and stay up. And with men, it usually takes two to four weeks longer before they start feeling the effects. Also sleep quality goes down. They wake up without a kickstand that most guys get in the morning. And then they also get thinning hair. So what I don't want to do is have the same thing happen with fasting that happened with the keto diet and the, the Bulletproof Diet, when it came out, was one of the early books talking about keto as a high-performance state that you could use strategically. But the message of go in and go out and only eat the right foods to be in keto kind of got lost. So you have these keto bros going, if you eat another carb, you're a bad person. And it doesn't work like that. You actually need carbs. You don't need them all the time. And you need the right carbs. And that's how you build your gut lining and stuff that's in your body of work. So you look at this and go, hmm. How does all this work together? And what you end up finding is that, okay, fasting is good, but overfasting is not good. And once we get that into people's minds and the idea that fasting isn't suffering and that there are things you can have during a fast that profoundly give you energy and turn off hunger, what you're really getting is about 15% of your brain's thoughts back every day. And I say, say that, that again, because there's 15% of your brain of the thoughts in your brain uh -huh. return back to you every day. Um, one of the studies in the book is about the number of times the average person thinks about food, like what's for your next meal. 15% of your thoughts, if you are average, which means you don't have metabolic dysfunction, you probably have more thoughts then. So if you used fasting to turn off hunger, so you're like, I'm just not worried about food, I'm not thinking about food right now, you get a lot of your brain energy right back to think about stuff you wanted to think about or do things you wanted to do. So it's a really big deal to learn how to do what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, getting back to hair loss, because I know there's some women that are going to wonder this, does fasting affect the thyroid and does that have anything to do with the hair loss? The hair loss is mostly coming from excess cortisol. If you overfast to the point that you're creating a lot of cortisol, a secondary effect of excess cortisol over time is an increase in autoimmunity. And it turns out that people who are more type A go-getters, uh, people you know, really focused on, on doing this like I was as a young person, like I'll burn the candle at both ends and maybe a little bit in the middle, but I'm going to get everything done I want to do. So relentless stress, whether it's from over fasting or from emotional stress or from pushing yourself uh, or even from excessive cardio exercise, you know, just run 10 miles a day and see what happens to you. All of those can lead to an increase in autoimmunity like Hashimoto's, which is tied to your thyroid. But the hair thinning that comes from overfasting is usually cortisol based. And then if you did it for a very long period of time, it would likely be thyroid based. 
And in my other books, I talk about you know, thyroid hormone and why you should why you should focus on that. So, what are the benefits of fasting? Why would anybody bother to do that? Well, imagine if you went in to a bank where you don't have an account and you walk in the door and they go, hey, here's some money. And you're like, that's weird. And they go, we'll pay you interest on that money later today and come back in a year and we'll give you more interest. And you're like, that's not how it's supposed to work. The first benefit of fasting is you spend less time, less energy and less money on breakfast than you do now because you don't have to do it anymore. So you got paid right away. And then all morning long, you have more energy and more focus than you did if you ate breakfast. It's true for me. And you're like, whoa, okay. And then over time, because you turn on autophagy and because it makes your metabolism stronger, you don't get type two diabetes. You don't become insulin resistant and you actually are more powerful in the world. And because you don't get those things, diabetes is a precursor to cancer, heart disease, and Alzheimer's. You just got younger. You have a metabolism that does a better job of turning air and food into the electrons that power everything you do. So it's, it's really remarkable that by saving money and time and energy on breakfast, you get it back that day and you get it back over time. And those are the main reasons you fast. Another reason some people fast is they want weight loss. But honestly, weight loss is a side effect of being better at making energy from food. That's true. But, um, you know, also I think there's actually a lot of research showing cancer is it's good for prevention and even treatment of cancer. But, you know, with a virus, there'll always be viruses. I have found that, you know, there's an old saying that goes like, um, feed a cold, starve a flu, which I assume is a virus. I've really found that when you feel like you're infected, you've been exposed to a virus, that's a really good time to start doing long periods of fasting. Not completely. And then what you eat uh, when you're, when you are eating is important too. Like I, I always tell people, if you feel like you've been exposed, you want to out alkalize your body real quickly and uh, apple cider vinegar in water is sipping on that is going to be quickly alkalizing and then staying with more alkalizing vegetables and so on. And even if you're inf infected, you may not even know about it, um, no symptoms or but you'll get over it very, very quickly. So I, I really honestly think it should be worked into, well, I actually have up in the website, a, um, uh, our antiviral protocol and you know what you eat to quickly get this virus under control, but also the time-restricted feeding part is, is an important part of it. So I think that's another benefit too. But you know, um, I think that many elderly people are malnourished they have already muscle loss and bone density problems. And so I would throw them in that category of people that probably shouldn't uh, fast. What, what do you think about the elderly? And what about your children? Do you have them fasting? Elderly people need fasting in a major way. They also need nutrient-dense foods free of toxins. And so we're not talking about reducing your calories. We're talking about eating the same amount you already eat. But when you're older like that and you have metabolic dysfunction, you've got to get your insulin sensitivity back. So I'm not saying fast until you have hypoglycemia and you're shaky. That's not what this is about. But even if you do a 14 hour fast and then you say, I am going to eat foods that are high in nutrient density. I'm not talking about jello with fake coloring in it. I'm not talking about junk food and cake. But if you say, okay, I'm going to focus on getting enough high quality protein, getting my collagen protein, 
getting my healthy fats, including saturated fat, eating my vegetables, you are going to reverse a lot of that frailty that happens. But if instead you say, I'm going to eat all the time, then your body never has a chance to go in and do the repair stuff that's necessary. So if you're dealing with muscle wasting and sarcopenia, then a short fast is going to get rid of the old dead cells that are part of the wasting. And then when you eat, you actually make a very focused effort on the most nutritious food that there possibly is. And if you're saying, I am, I have decided that I'm only going to eat whatever I like, and I'm going to live off noodles and cake. It probably doesn't matter if you eat all the time or if you intermittent fast, you're not on a good path. You're not going to like how that ends. Yeah, actually, there are studies showing that like this group of um, rats were fed really bad junk food. And this group was fed really bad junk food, but they were doing intermittent fasting. And even though they both ate bad food, this group here with the intermittent fasting, or maybe it was time some kind of fasting, they yeah. were in so much better shape. And you just reminded me of something my mother used to say. She lived in Florida. And she used to say, you know, people, you know, they get older and they retire, they come down to Florida to die. Like they think they're going to, this is their last phase of life, they're going to die. But, you know, um, it's interesting because the restaurants down here have all these early bird specials. So people that are retired and older, they, they're very concerned about their money. So they go to the early bird specials. Well, that's usually is around five o'clock. So that's when they have their meal. So they're probably unknowingly uh, intermittent, you know, definitely fasting for a long time, time restricted feeding. And then um, that's probably very much contributing to their longer lifespan. And of course, they're out, they're more active, and mm -hmm. they're, like you said, getting in the light. So that's uh, so important, I think. That's really perceptive. I never thought of it, but the early bird special saves you money, but it also makes sure you don't eat right before bedtime. And yeah, it is better for you lives. to do that. <laughs> saves yeah, money, it does saves save lives. Life. Yeah. Well, I you, wrote down all these different questions. I had billions of things. kids, though. Oh, yeah, kids. Yeah, please. Um, generally speaking, let kids eat when they're hungry, but don't intentionally force a fast. One of the things that we do, mostly because our parents or grandparents went through uh, world wars where there really was a food shortage. And this has happened throughout thousands of years of human history. So to any parent seeing your children hungry, it pushes buttons. And the reality is that just like you, if your kids didn't eat for a month, they'd be thin and unhappy, but they'd be alive. So if they don't have breakfast, there is no disaster, but it sure feels like one. And kids learn pretty early on that you're stressed about that. So they have control over you by complaining about their food. Uh, so with kids, look, if you really don't want breakfast, don't have breakfast today. Eat when you're hungry. That's okay. And it's one thing if you have a kid with an eating disorder or if you have a child who just never eats, right, and is underweight. But for the average child, it's just more intuitive eating. And a lot of children, if you give them a choice, they'll have breakfast at if they're home, you know, 10, 11, 12, instead of when they first wake up and they're totally happy to do it and they're calm and focused and playing and no one dies. It's not a disaster. It just feels like that if you think breakfast is the most important meal of the day and, you know, you'll go into starvation mode and, you know, bad things that I don't know what they are, but bad things will happen if you don't have breakfast. No, bad things won't happen if you skip breakfast. Yeah, breakfast cereal, people won't like to hear that. <laughs> Well, such a I mean, vast amount of money the, is made on breakfast cereals. Look at the history of breakfast cereal. Um, graham crackers and corn flakes from Kellogg's were originally designed 
um, back in the day to reduce testosterone because the guys really? who made those companies. Oh yeah, wow. it's this is very public. They believe that especially male desire was the root of all evil. So if they could just come up with foods that would lower that, uh, then what do you know? Uh, then the world would be a better place. And unfortunately, it doesn't really work like that because that hormone testosterone in men and women is also a hormone of having vigor in your life and wanting to get things done and just being connected and interested in the world. If you ever see the movie Grumpy Old Men? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a documentary on yeah, testosterone, testosterone deficiency. Yeah. Well, I don't just see it in the movie. I saw the movie, but I see it in men all the time. You know, I'm in my 70s and most I see seven-year-olds and I think, uh, well, first of all, I feel finally that all the years of eating well and doing the stuff I do and all that is paid off because I don't feel like most seven-year-olds or, or I have much more energy and move differently and all. But, um, and it's really sad because I wish people, everybody understood by the, from the age of 25, 30 on that, that we don't have to age the way we're aging. But, but definitely, I think men and women, when they get older, become much more grumpy. But, but getting back to the testosterone, because I'm sure a lot of men would like to know a little bit more about that. So fasting, does it have a positive effect on men's testosterone or? Fasting, especially regular intermittent fasting or a longer fast will raise growth hormone and testosterone. As long as you eat enough saturated fat uh, when you break your fast. So if you're eating a low fat diet and fasting is going to have a much lower effect because testosterone and all of your other sex hormones are made out of cholesterol uh -huh. and it's okay to eat cholesterol in food. There is no danger from it. Even the American Heart Association has said, quote, cholesterol in food is a nutrient of non-concern. They basically held up their hand about five years ago and said, we were wrong. Eating cholesterol doesn't appear to do much to you, but it's still bad. That second part I don't agree with, uh -huh. uh, but- What's happening here is if you're low on saturated fats, you're just eating omega-6 seed oils, you can't manufacture testosterone very well. But fasting will help you. Weight training at the end of a fast, right before you eat, will also help you enormously, whether you're a man or a woman. And it doesn't have to be crazy weight training. I'm talking do some squats and push-ups, and that alone can boost testosterone and growth hormone. Well, what I was just looking at somebody blood, somebody's blood results the other day, and I noticed that his high density lipoprotein was low. So I texted back and I said, um, is, is your husband on a um, drug that lowers his cholesterol? He's on a whole bunch of drugs actually. And so I'm wondering too, if you're on drugs, oh, and by the way, his testosterone was low, which is a big concern because his father died early of a heart problem and he's got a heart problem and you need heart. Men need healthy levels of testosterone to have a healthy heart. So, um, do you think um, the drugs, you know, the drugs that lower cholesterol, for example, are, uh, if you're on a drug like that, would you tell that person don't, don't fast? Or what, what would you say to someone on drugs? You, you still need to fast, even if you're taking a statin drug. Fasting will lower your blood pressure um, very reliably, actually. And you still have to eat good food when you do it. But fasting really improves blood pressure for a lot of people. And because it lowers insulin, it lowers risk of all of the mortality events that come as a consequence of high insulin, including cardiovascular disease. If you're taking a statin, statins inhibit your mitochondria's ability to use food to make energy. It actually breaks your power plants. 
-hmm. So unless you're in the small, maybe three to 5% of people who have a genetic reason or something to take it, statins are just bad for your energy. They make you tired. They make your cells weak. If you do take a statin, you absolutely must take coenzyme Q10 with it, which is a supplement you can take. And you, Where you I live carry, up in, do you have, don't you have CoQ10 in your um, supplement? Bulletproof line? doesn't make a CoQ10 directly. We make Unfair Advantage, which has oh. CoQ10 and something called PQQ, mm -hmm. uh, which is another charger of the mitochondrial system. What you'll find is like up here in Canada where I live, it's actually not legal to prescribe statins without coenzyme Q10, but in the US they do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting, that's not well known. Well, you mentioned breaking the fast, coming off the fast. What advice would you give people for, let's say they go actually go on a longer fast. Like we haven't talked about that type of fasting, a two or three or four day fast, or like the people up at True North that you, did an interview that the man that you did the interview with that um, takes people up there for 30 days under medical supervision. Um, what about breaking a fast if they do a longer fast? And do you believe in longer fast? And there's a lot of interesting information about the effect on the microbiome of long term fasts. Longer fasts are, are really powerful. And I'm a fan of doing medically assisted water fasting the way they do at True North and various other places. Although True North relies a lot on some vegetable juices and a very low sodium thing, even post fast, which I have I have questions about things I talked about on the podcast mm -hmm. uh, with a doctor who does them. But he's got you know, thirty years of helping people with with really serious diseases. So if you're dealing with cancer, um, you know, really heavy duty disease, one of the things that is likely a contributor is something that you know and love, which is your gut bacteria. So when you do water fast you're basically giving the bacteria nothing to eat. And the bad bacteria that are secreting all kinds of stuff you don't know about, they've got nothing. And eventually they might go away or at least stop having activity in the body. And that's a very different thing than intermittent fasting during the work week. So you have mitochondrial energy and autophagy. And so those are you know gut healing fasts. And the protocols they use involve a lot of vegetable juice, which I found a lot of vegetable juices are kind of rough on the body, um, but some people handle them very well. So in a protocol wow. like that, um, they, uh, they, they do it that way. I prefer to break a longer fast with something like a bone broth or a soup. Mm -hmm. Just let the digestive system warm up a little bit, mm -hmm. get used to doing something, something that's light and easy to handle. Uh, and then once you've got that settled in, then it's time to start adding healthy fats in moderate amounts and a little bit more protein and going up from there. Well, okay, so over the years, there have been different fads that have come and gone. There's the grapefruit diet. Uh, today, we've got the carnivore. That's kind of very, sort of a fast because all they're eating, if they're uh, carnivores, are they're eating, you know, they're getting protein and fat, basically. And that absolutely has a very dramatic, quick effect on the microbiome. Uh, the bacteria that end up growing are bacteria that eat protein and fats, and they're usually gram negative and they're not particularly healthy. Um, but what do you think about the carnivore diet? And then in, in those type of fasts, they're, they're in the category of fasting because you're eating something, but you're just eating the same thing every day. Well, fasting, the definition is, is to go without. If you fast from junk food, it's called eating healthy. If you fast from meat, it's called a vegan diet. If you fast from carbs, it's called the keto diet. And if you fast from all plant stuff, except coffee, strangely, most carnivore people drink coffee because coffee is awesome. Uh, but- <laughs> Um, then uh, you're fasting from plants. 
the the approach that I arrived at after a lot of research and testing the bulletproof diet, uh, which has now you know, stood the test of time, you only eat grass-fed meat. It's the same thing as carnivores. You only eat low inflammation vegetables. You don't eat the highly inflammatory stuff. Uh, and you eat only saturated and monounsaturated fats without the omega-6 oils. It is very similar to where most carnivore people end up. They go carnivore for a month or two. They realize it's expensive and difficult. And then they go, hmm, I want a little bit more variety. And they add in low toxin vegetables, maybe honey. Uh, and then we end up at a very, very similar place <laughs> where don't eat the veggies that cause problems, but have some veggies. And so I look at the carnivore diet as kind of a cleansing fast where you can do it. And on the, the Bulletproof Diet Roadmap, and people can download that. You go to fastthisway.com. There's a roadmap that summarizes all the food recommendations in the book. And what's very cool there is you're always in some neighborhood and you look at the proteins and what are the proteins that you should focus on? It's four-legged grass-fed animals. <laughs> it's beef, it's lamb. If you eat pork, pastured pork, so it doesn't have all the omega-6 oils that come from pigs that eat corn and soy, uh, wild-caught fish to a certain extent. And when you do that kind of stuff, although carnivore people don't generally eat fish, but what you end up with is, hmm, there's, there's a, you're in a good neighborhood of the Bulletproof Diet if you're on carnivore. I just don't think it's what you want to do all the time. There's very few people who say, I'm going to be carnivore for three years. I have a good friend who's been on the show, Steve Omohundro, um, who's a leader in AI and building a global brain and just some cool stuff. He was fighting leukemia for almost 10 years and he went carnivore and it completely stopped his leukemia. He had bad stuff in his gut and he starved it out. So there's there's mm -hmm. usefulness for it, but it's like a cleanse. I, I don't know that it's a long-term strategy, but you want to do it for a month, totally support it. Yeah. And I would even say, because I recommended this because I've got the same exact philosophy you do with Bulletproof and Body Ecology is that except we push uh, fermented foods for most people. I mean, I'm a big believer in fermented vegetables, but not for everybody, not if you have SIBO, for example, it's not the time to, to eat fermented foods, but you wanna get rid of the right. SIBO and then you wanna get those bacteria in your gut. So this, what I do know from the research I've done is the microbiome are greatly changed uh, by the carnivore diet. So if you haven't had healthy bacteria in your gut, then it might be really good to start off by doing the meat and some fermented foods and start moving into vegetables that way. But um, there, what about the one meal a day? You know, we can't leave those people out. And mm -hmm. OMD, it's a form of fasting. I uh, I love that, that. It sounds so like like studly. Hey, I'm going to do an OMAD today. And what it means <laughs> is you just get breakfast and lunch. You had one meal a day. You had dinner. That's what it usually is. You could do one meal a day at lunch. You say I had lunch today. But I did that two days ago. Like oh, I had a nice big lunch with all of my daily calorie and nutrient needs. And I'm like, I'm really not hungry for dinner. And I just waited till lunch the next day. I'm like, oh, look, yeah. I just had 23 hour fast because it lined up and it was nice. The kids Especially when dinner, that, sat with them. When you did eat that windmill, it's kind of later in the day, like three, yeah. four, and it's got enough food yep. in it that you're really not hungry at dinner time. I agree. Yeah, and you actually sleep better when you do that. But if you did one meal a day and you ate at 9 p.m., <laughs> man, you're not gonna sleep very well. Mm -hmm. So timing matters on that. And the, the point in fast this way is that you can go from, um, you know, a 14 hour fast up to one meal a day, one day, and the next day you can do the opposite, but there is no rigid, you have to do it this way every single day. And it just doesn't work that way because it's a stressor on the body. It's a beneficial stressor, but too much beneficial stress is no longer beneficial. 
And, and so it's this flexibility around fasting. That's the big thing. Well, I also think two things. Um, first of all, until very recently, we didn't have all this food. Yes. So you're basically doing what the body knows how to do, which is the body didn't get food sometimes and it adapted very well. Uh, and if, since we're going back to that, and also there's, and you have this, I was really pleased to see that you bring this up in the book, um, these anti-nutrients in foods, oxalates, which are big to me is a big one. Uh, people that have candidiasis in their body, they're constantly producing um, serious amount of oxalates. And, the, and, and so many people have candidiasis. Again, I think that's why carnivore works well. Anybody with leukemia, for example, is going to have for sure have yeast infection in their body. So, yep. um, you know, anyway, the uh, oxalates are made um, by most of all, in my opinion, they're partly from food, but very much from yeast. And uh, so I think it's really important to be mindful of oxalates and to avoid those that are very high in oxalates, stick with the medium and low ones. Uh, so it's important to look those up, but there is a controversy over which ones are high and which ones are low. Um, I actually work with the University of a food lab at the University of Nebraska, and I've had a lot of them tested. Oat milk is real popular right now, so oat milk fortunately wasn't high in oxalates. But that, that's what you're doing is if you're um, fasting, is you're ending up with less of those um, yeah. poisons in the food too. It's such a big thing, and I'm glad you said that. And in, in the book, I talk about these five big categories of food toxins that make you have cravings during a fast. And oxalates are in there. And I'm 100% with you. If you live in a place with toxic mold and you have candida, you will have oxalates because it makes them on board. Mm -hmm. And if you eat raw spinach, raw kale, or even cooked spinach and kale, they're high oxalate foods. And almond milk is surprisingly high in oxalates. Uh, almond, cashew, you know, everything's like even pizza crust today are made with almond flour. I know years ago when I really was very, very involved with children with autism, that's where I first got turned, uh, began to understand the importance of avoiding high oxid foods is the kids were super sensitive. Of course, they have gut issues and they have yeast, but um, they were very highly reactive to, you know, the, the pain, eye pain, but their mothers would go through this phase of going gluten-free and casein-free and then move into, um, uh, they still wanted to give them pancakes and cookies and so on. And so they'd move into um, almond flour pancakes and cookies. And oh my gosh, that's really when, you know, <laughs> I don't say it, but that's when things got really bad. And so, and that's when um, Julie Matthews and myself and Susan Owens, uh, Susan especially, really, really spent a lot of time looking into the oxalate issue. But for a very long time, people didn't talk about them. All of a sudden, now we're learning about them, but I don't think people tie them into yeast and mold, like you said. And just like you, I had um, candida and from years of antibiotics and mold in my gut. And it was very much contributing to, um, uh, I'm very sensitive to oxalates. In other words, I'm, I never eat spinach, sweet potato, um, nuts or seeds um, in, in the bean family, because I do feel that sometimes, you know, the fiber in them. Um, beans can be good, but the only one that's safe for his black eyed peas, which actually I grew up on in the South. Uh, but some yeah, really navy beans important. are the worst. They're, they're higher than almonds and oh, I didn't know cashews that. and walnuts tend to be relatively low in oxalates uh, compared to the rest of them, which cashews is and walnuts. Well, see, that's what I mean about the controversy because uh, flax seeds are, are, you know, low. And uh, you know, you know what I found though, I found a study over in New Zealand and uh, they found 
that pecans were very low. So it seems that a major factor is where were they grown? Because those pecans from New Zealand were very low. Um, I mean, I, I wish they're wonderful foods, pecan, but, they, but they also are the same foods that have phytic acid on them because who wants to eat their mm. walnut or their pecan after it's been soaking in salt water? You're, you're totally right. In fact, phytic <laughs> acid is another one of the categories of foods to watch out for. If, you're, mm. if you want to eat something and not be hungry, you eat something high in oxalates or high in phytic acid or high in omega-6 oil or high in histamines. Mm-hmm. Um, those or high in mold toxins, uh, which a lot of foods are, and you wouldn't know it. All of those are going to drive cravings and hunger. Mm. And the whole point is, what if you ate so you weren't hungry for eight hours afterwards? What would that look like? Can you do that? Because if so, fasting yeah. becomes relevant. It's so much easier. Yeah, I'm glad we brought this up because it's still not known. Now I have another little bit, uh, another topic. I just had to ask you about it because. Um, when somebody starts to fast, particularly if it's a prolonged fast, if they're going to fast for a day or two or three, a lot of toxins start flooding out into the bloodstream. What do you think of doing colonics or enemas on that day or the second day? Because it it certainly makes I, people I didn't feel write better. about it. In no, the you book. didn't. I was waiting for that to come up when I was it's listening to you of, on Audible. It's kind of because, you know, not not eating breakfast is already pretty shocking for a lot of people. I was uh, I was just on a bunch of major shows in the UK and there's articles in the mirror and the sun going, you know, crazy American tells us not to eat breakfast. It's dangerous. And like people mm. really get reactive because like, I'm going to starve, uh, which is, is, you know, kind of funny. That's how the British press, it, press is. And they're saying this when the book is you know very high on the bestseller list there. And you go to the next, uh, the next phase of that and uh, say, all right, now we're going to talk about colonics and enemas. And it would take a lot of focus away from the, hey, you can skip breakfast without this because it would turn into, oh, if you're going to fast, you should have a colonic. Colonics can help a lot. I mean, you've introduced me to you know some people who really have amazing results uh, from colonics. And what I do think everyone can do that's maybe a baby step there, and I recommend this very heavily during a fast, is activated charcoal. Because well, I was going to bring that up next. Go ahead and talk about that. Why? Okay. Because it's binding those toxins. So yeah, exactly. Talk about that. Well, when you lose weight, you're excreting a bunch of toxins that will stick to activated charcoal. But even before you get toxins out of your fat, your gut bacteria get stressed. They make lipopolysaccharides, which cross the gut barrier, cause inflammation and hunger and brain fog. Lipopolysaccharides are well documented to stick to activated charcoal. So if when your stomach's empty, away from any medications, you were to take some activated charcoal, magically, if you do lose weight and there was toxins in the fat you're burning, you're going to stick it into the charcoal. But the gut bacterial toxins will also stick there and you're going to be less hungry when you do that. Probably also huge difference in um, how you feel as far as the Herxheimer. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just don't feel good when all those toxins are starting to be released. Um, so I think my last question was, um, really about, uh, supplements, like, so some of the researchers that I've read their, you know, their research, say at Cedar Sinai, for example, that that tend to believe more in the five, two, you know, five days of eating two days, um, maybe they eat, uh, two days of fasting. And, And the reason for that is that they have found that the bacteria, uh, bloom and, and, healthier bacteria 
um, grow if there's a longer than 16 hour fasting time. So they do the five, two, but I think um, it's interesting too, because they made a point that you can do a fast without uh, being a completely zero, zero calorie fast. Like it doesn't, you can have something, uh, but, but also what about supplements? Like, did you, uh, because I kind of feel, and this is what I do myself is that it takes three hours for the food to go into the stomach if you've had a meal like protein, vegetables, and then three, and then it moves into the small intestine for about three hours, then into the colon for much longer. But you know, if you're not eating, then you have this empty stomach, empty small intestine, which is where nutrients are absorbed. Where a lot of people have problems, like with SIBO and all SIBO and CIFO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth. So it might be a really good time to take gut healing supplements because there's not anything in there, but, you know, gut repairing supplements when you're, and then also if you, to get that food out of your colon, you could do an enema, take these gut repairing supplements or even take probiotics with prebiotics to feed them. And it might be a really good supplement, a good time to take them. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, one of the three big fasting hacks that turns off hunger during intermittent fast is prebiotic fiber. So the, the three big things are black coffee, because black coffee has enough caffeine that, <clears throat> that will double ketone production and ketones turn off hunger and give you energy. Wait, so wait, black wait, coffee David, can help. Did you say that one more time? What do you mean black coffee? In other words, you don't put milk or anything in it. Yeah, just, just, plain, just plain old black coffee. Proof coffee. <laughs> Yeah, you want it to be mold tested, of course. Yeah. That helps with fasting because it reduces hunger and because it increases ketosis all by itself. For most people, that's not enough if they've never fasted before. So then the second hack is make it a bulletproof coffee. Add a little bit of butter, it doesn't have to be a lot, and add the MCT oil that I'm really well known for, and you blend it. And when you blend it, it changes the water chemistry in the coffee so your body can quickly use that liquid in the Krebs cycle without having to heat it up ahead of time. So it kind of skips a step of metabolizing water to use it inside of cells. And you get extra ketones from the MCT oil. So if you do that, most people are like, wow, I'm really full and I'm still losing weight, but my brain is on. Mm -hmm. And this is why in 10 years of the Bulletproof diet, people have lost millions of pounds and it works. And then the third one is prebiotic fiber. And you can put 20 grams of fiber that your body can't digest, but that your good gut bacteria love. This is a gut healing thing. You can take it with or without probiotics. But there's no one on earth who can sit there, make a bulletproof coffee, add some prebiotic fiber, blend it up and drink it. If you do that, you just won't care about food for like six hours. It's amazing. But you're still, from the body's perspective, well, you must be fasting because my autophagy is up because you ate no protein. My insulin is level because you ate no carbs. Your mTOR, which is a driver of autophagy, when mTOR is low, you're in autophagy. When mTOR is high, you're out of autophagy and into you know, build tissue mode, which is also an inflammation mode. So you can maintain the state of fasting and do that in the morning. And anyone, even if they're substantially overweight and their metabolism isn't fit, you do that in the morning, you don't really want to eat. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, look at me. I just went 16 hours without eating, but I never had a dip in my energy. And that's that's a true kind of freedom. Well, the, as far as being uh, caffeine-free, um, two questions. First of all, have you ever had people tell you that they do the bulletproof coffee with the fat, the oil in the MCT, or the butter in the MCT? Do they uh, ever use that? Uh, you know how you can do a retention enema with coffee and it blows up in the bile duct and gets that bile flowing? 
Um, I don't think it's advisable to use the fats rectally. There are lots of people who use the Bulletproof beans because they're lab tested. It's a very clean coffee and we, we change the way the coffee's fermented uh, in order, and then we lab test it in order to make sure that there's no mold toxins that are very common in coffee. Mm. Uh, so a lot what, of people- What do you mean that. by change the way it's fermented? When coffee normally gets processed, it gets picked and then it gets put in these big cement troughs full of river water and it sits and kind of spoils for a couple of days mm -hmm. to make it easier to remove the coffee fruit. And that's when a mycotoxin from mold called ochrotoxin A forms. And it's such a problem in coffee that most governments around the world have legal limits for the maximum amount of this toxin. Um, unfortunately, the US and Canada have no limits. So when coffee is illegal to sell in China or to sell in Japan or Europe, they send it to the US and we drink it. And an hour later, we get jittery and shaky and cranky. And you can tell you've had moldy coffee. If you ever drink coffee and you have to pee very quickly afterwards and your bladder's not full, that's because ochratoxin A is a specific toxin that targets the kidney and the bladder first. So your body will tell you, pee it out, pee it out, pee it out. Mm, and if you drink good coffee, like the stuff that I make that is lab tested and you know, we change that fermentation step, then what you end up with is you drink the coffee and you don't have to pee right afterwards because caffeine is not a meaningful diuretic, but bad coffee is a very strong diuretic. And for people with a CYP1A2, which is that gene that makes you retain uh, you eat some caffeine and then all day long, you're, you're up, you know, and yep. which I have that gene. And so I would never, unfortunately, eat chocolate at the end of the day or have coffee or I'll just not go to bed that night. So um, what about the caffeine free coffee? Most people with the gene, depending on whether you have you know, double LLs and whatnot, most people tolerate a cup of coffee in the morning, but the fat changes the pharmacokinetics of caffeine. So it absorbs more gently. So you don't get the spike. Uh, and you just want to drink that in the morning, not at noon. And for something like 80% of people, you can have coffee up till 2 p.m. and still sleep just fine. So you might have some coffee with caffeine or, and this is a problem, coffee companies take the worst quality coffee, which means the moldiest, and they decaffeinate that because like what kind of coffee level during decaf? It's kind of a sin against coffee. So what I do at Bulletproof is we decaffeinate the, uh, the best beans, the ones that are lab tested. And uh, so there are many, many people who do that. And studies of coffee, where they're looking at coffee and likelihood of dying of all causes, coffee appears to lower your likelihood of dying from just about everything. I mean, there's all kinds of studies out there. Mm -hmm. So decaf works fine. It doesn't oh, have to be caffeinated to work. Oh, perfect. That's good to know. And then, but I thought it was interesting that when you were interviewing uh, the man that's the doctor uh, up there at True North, he said that they have people go off of caffeine completely before they even start the program. And, uh, you know, it's good to have different opinions, I guess. But there, There's a bit of a, of a 70s vibe. It's like no salt. There's very good evidence that our bodies need salt when we're stressed. Oh, yeah, and so teaching people to not have salt, ugh, it raises renin levels in the blood, which raises risk of heart attack. And like many, many top experts are saying we need more salt, not less. So I, I would question that. And the anti-caffeine thing, man, caffeine and coffee both appear to be good for us when you look at the sum of the knowledge, unless you can't metabolize it like, like you and a few other people. Well, I can't really in the morning, like you said, it just stays with me. And um, yeah. I've read all of that research too. And then I wasn't ever drinking coffee and I decided finally to try it in the morning. Uh, it's addictive. So I like having it now, but I, I just want to say something about salt because I think it's important. You know, people throw salt into one lump category as if they're yeah. all, you know, the stuff in the box, the Morton, when it, I hope it's okay to say other names, but 
when it rains, it pours that we, this was the only salt I ever saw growing up. That's mm-hmm. not salt. So if that's yeah. what he means, then yes, want to get rid of that. But Agreed. I don't eat that stuff either, but yeah. sea salt is different, right? And and then my friend, Selena DeLonger, who has, the, she's brought the, her um, father-in-law brought the Celtic salt into the country. She has a great salt that I love called Mackay. And it comes from way below the ocean in Hawaii, very pure, but it's also very rich in potassium and it has less sodium. So that's, there's, salts are not all the same, the well so-called said. pink uh, that the salt that everybody's about the Himalayan salts, it depends on where it comes from because some of those mines over there are nasty and there's no regulation in Pakistan. Um, so you just have to be careful about that. But I heard him say on the podcast that, you know, people can still have up to like a thousand milligrams. I think that's about a teaspoon or certainly half a teaspoon. So it doesn't mean no salt, yeah. um, but I just happened to notice it, it turns that out that levels thing. below 2.6 grams a day increase heart attack risk, according to the uh, pre- the former president of the American pre or the American Hypertension Society. So, yikes! You know, there, there's going to be questions about that, but I, I do know most people with a little bit of salt in the morning do better on intermittent fasts. Uh-huh. Well, I wonder if you're fasting just in a water fast, you could put a little salt in. And we, we have these minerals, uh, humic and fulvic minerals yeah. that I like to put in the water too, because well, first of all, they don't have any taste. So people don't have a problem with taste, but um, the bacteria actually in the soil actually make these bacteria, uh, the humic and fulvic minerals in order to feed themselves. I mean, they, they make the minerals and then they absorb those minerals and that's how they feed themselves. So and they're very gut healing, by the way. They restore integrity to the gut too. Good so, point. you know, when I hear something like just water, don't dare put anything in the water. I, I'm not sure. I definitely don't agree with that. I, I think so. we're we're in alignment on that. Okay. Don't, I'm running into my next podcast and I yeah, want no, to no, thank no. you for having me on. I was your just going to say, you have answered all my questions. And I thank you so much because I, I knew just squeezing me in was a big deal. So, thank you. I'm really happy to connect with you again. And thank you for all of the wisdom you've shared. It's definitely been informative and useful for me. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye.